The Start On Demand. On demand. What is your favorite sports movie? Every second Tuesday on the CJOB Sports Show, Christian O'Mell and Jeff Braun, co-host of The Couch Potatoes, get together and review a sports movie. This week they did Field of Dreams, so that got us thinking, let's have a chat about what our favorite sports movies are and then find out what your favorite sports movie is. Yes, it's a Friday. We like to have fun on Friday, but it's not all fun and games, especially when Winnipeg police release new information on the unsolved murder of Thelma Krull. So we're going to speak with somebody from across the pond about the psychology and policing behind finding answers in unsolved murders. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Loren McNabb and a vacation in Greg Mackling, who is back next week, just as I slip away for a week. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Friday, July 12th podcast for The Start. So normally I always, there's always one that I go to, but I was thinking about it this morning and it just kind of hit me like, you know what, there's actually a movie that stands above that one in terms of a sports movie. And I never actually thought of it as a sports movie, but yeah, it's a sports movie. So I'm excited to share that with you. Oh, It's actually a terrible movie, but when I was a kid, I loved it. Oh, it's one of those where you, you watch and you go, I know this sucks. But I don't care. Speaking of movies that we loved as kids, I don't know about you, and I'm going to try to phrase this so I don't give away the spoilers, okay. but I finished Stranger Things last night. Oh, good for you. And wow. there's a scene in it where they reference the never-ending story. Yes. And I was just so, de- like, I was so pumped up after hearing that theme song that I uh, I wanted to just immediately watch that dog fly through the sky. Falcor. Yeah. I wanted Gosh, Falcor. that was a great movie. I, yeah, when I was a kid, I wanted to ride Falcor through the sky, <laughs> and I wanted to be a Treyu and take on the, uh, the, the big bad wolf. That's also an awful movie, by the way. Have oh, you no, watched, it's, gone no, back and watched it? I would it? like to go back and watch it. And also in Stranger Things. Sorry, continue with that. So you've gone back. Have you actually gone back to oh, watch yeah. it? Oh, yeah. I've watched it. I can't remember when I watched it. But and I it remember didn't give watching. you that same feeling at all? <sighs> a little bit, but I remember thinking, this is kind of bad. Yeah. But but it's in the context of, like, now we have all these great graphics and CG and all the rest, right? And, you like, that dog was... In a, the oldest of green screens, yeah, fake flying. Right? I don't know if it, I don't know that it was the effects. Like I, I know when I watch a movie from the seventies or eighties, and the, the effects are are bad. I know that you got to take that with a grain of salt. But I, I think it was very clearly a kids' movie. Although, mind you, my my parents enjoyed it. At least my dad, I think, liked it. I'm not sure if my mom liked it, but I know my dad liked watching it when we were kids. So maybe I should give it another shot. The well, sequel, though, I can tell you that sucks. <laughs> Well, most do. I really find that we should just say goodbye to most sequels. But let's to, to completely derail this, also in Stranger Things is the mayor in the third season, the guy from The Princess Bride. The Dread Pirate Roberts, yes, <laughs> yeah. Wesley. So then this comes up, and I was like, that's the, that's the pirate from Princess Bride. And my husband says, what? And he's never heard of that movie nor seen it. Hold on a second. I never was, seen, I can understand, but never heard? He didn't know what I was talking about. And I was like, Andre the Giant, Six Finger Man. Like, I went down this whole list. Like, and so I feel like maybe it's just buried somewhere deep. Never heard of the Princess Bride? That's inconceivable. Oh, I saw a great meme going around the other day about the Princess Bride that was like, you want to watch a romantic comedy? Yeah, Princess Bride. Well, I was thinking something with a bit more, you know, fighting and violence. Yeah, the Princess Bride. Well, you know, something that's kind of fantastical, horror. Yeah, the Princess Bride. <laughs> But it's this whole big thing about how the Princess Bride, you know, if you're sitting down as a couple, it fits, hits all these boxes. I don't know that there is a, uh, any other movie 
like The Princess Bride, that truly has something for everyone, for all ages, all demographics. It's like the ultimate yeah. like, sort of, all, it's like the all-dressed movie Like, I could watch movies. that with my kids now, and we would all have a great time. Yeah. And then, hilariously, a few years ago, a friend of ours got married, and the person doing the sermon started mm. off with, like, marriage. Oh, that that get, has got to be used all over the planet. But I don't think she was trying to. She just had that tone. So then there's the groom up there who watched it with us growing up. Oh, and we're God. all trying not to make eye contact because we couldn't decide, is this like pastor trying to channel the Princess Bride? Or do they even know that they just did a marriage? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it was by, delightful. By the way, Derek, I, uh, Derek says, I stand correct. He found uh, something on the internet, sent me a screen grab. Sunblock 5000 from RoboCop. So there you go. You see that picture? It's this woman she's, out bathing in uh, full blue wow, paste. Wow, she's bathing, bathing naked in a full blue paste. Well, she's got a bathing suit on That's here. That's not a bathing suit. Well, it. yeah, she's covered. You know, the, the parts are covered. <laughs> McNabb is saying no. As we mark this week, an important anniversary in the city of Winnipeg. That, of course, is the disappearance and homicide of Thelma Crawl, with Winnipeg police revealing yesterday they're now looking for a driver of a gold-colored four-door sedan like a Toyota, Hyundai, or Honda. It's just one of the many pieces of information they've been following up on over the last four years, repeatedly pledging they will continue to work hard to find her killer. That's a promise that's not just important for her family and our community, but for other families out there also looking for their own answers. Just last month, we had the son of Eduardo Balaquid in talking about the disappearance of his father. He went missing in June 2018. And outside city limits in Portage La Prairie, the family of Jennifer Ketchaway, who disappeared in 2008, is getting ready for their annual fundraiser, an event they hold each summer in hopes of raising just enough money to continue their search in ponds and forests for their daughter. We know there are more names, more investigations still marked unsolved. Jason Roach is the director of the Applied Criminology and Policing Centre in Huddersfield, England. He's also written several books and publications on this topic, and he joins us now. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. How hard does it get to find answers with the passage of time? Uh, it gets increasingly harder. Um, for example, if you were looking at a case back in the 1970s and the 1980s, an unsolved homicide there, then of course, the, you know, there isn't going to be any new forensics. There isn't going to be likely to be any new witnesses and certainly no CCTV. So with the passage of time, things get more difficult. It's not just the public whose memories fade. What is the impact on the detectives looking into these cases? Um, well, the detectives that I, I know over in the UK, and I can't say Canadian ones being any different, um, they take it all very personally. Um, and when they retire, if they still have an undetected homicide, you know, that they've worked on, then it, it, it literally goes with them until they, they're no longer here. Um, constantly, I know detectives, when a new technology comes in, sort of uh, when low copy number DNA evidence came in, um, that would, you know, that were, were kind of recommending cases that uh, had been unsolved, that been involved in, on the off chance that this breakthrough in technology could actually give them, you know, some leads because um, they'd reached a dead end. Has that technology helped, though? I mean, and obviously it has in the, in the quick answer with DNA and the rest, but, you know, I've even done cases over the years where they might find remains and they'll be able to do uh, skull analysis or other things that allow them to 
piece pieces of the puzzle together decades later, which of course gives all sorts of families hope. Is the technology increasingly helping or is it just as, as slow as it may have been, you know, in the 70s? Well, it, uh, no, no, it's definitely helping. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's nowhere near um, what's, what's portrayed on CSI or something like that. Um, you know that the sort of the fictional programs are far more advanced than, than sort of the sciences, if you like. But of course, the DNA. The, the wonderful thing about DNA is is identifying people, so it can identify people ten, you know, bodies ten, fifteen years, twenty years, whatever after um, after the homicide or suspected homicide. Um, and of course, increasingly more people are going on to DNA databases. So for more recent crimes, you'd expect, you know, if somebody is a regular kind of offender, they will be on the database. So matches will be, you know, much, much quicker. Um, but it, it isn't the panacea of all ills. It isn't going to help crack all cases. And some cases are just incredibly difficult for some reason um, or other. And all the science in the world isn't really going to help. Is there ever any anger directed at police from families involved uh, who are affected by these cold cases? Um, I would imagine so. Um, it depends on, on the case and it depends on the police officers involved and the relationship that they have with the family. Um, but you know, going back to sort of 1970s, 1980s, there was, uh, in the UK, there was a series of, of, of really kind of uh, injustices and people that were being sent to prison for, for, for murders that they hadn't committed um, and the anger that families showed there was, was, was when it was found that the person that they thought had killed their nearest and dearest um, and had given them some kind of closure actually hadn't and so their anger was then directed at the police because they'd got the wrong person and the person that had um, harmed or killed their, their uh, family member uh, was still out there. It highlights the importance, perhaps, though, of, of keeping these cases alive in the sense of those miscarriages of justice. And I, I don't know in your research, Dr. Roach, if you found, you know, whether or not we're applying enough resources to some of these old cases to keep them alive and keep investigating uh, the rights and the wrongs that may have been done. Um, I, I, can't, I mean, I can only answer that from a UK perspective. And yes, um, I mean, obviously, most of the police resources are invested, quite rightly, in current and more, you know, uh, sort of um, more recent crimes because that's what policing is about. The more retrospective stuff, of course, is still on the books, but it isn't a top priority. Um, but, I mean, I can only tell you about some of the cases. What I do is, is I've looked at cases where there's been a long interval between the crime and eventually the detection of who did it. We call them long, long interval detections. Um, and that's the only way that you can learn about why a case becomes cold and, and then why retrospectively, it doesn't become cold because you've got a definitive outcome, if you see what I mean. Um, but as you just look at, look at cold cases, you're not going to get anywhere because you don't know who actually did it. Is there a danger in labelling something a cold case? I don't like the term myself, but it seems to be one that everybody, everybody remembers. Um, but yeah, cold case itself, I mean, it's quite a pejorative term, isn't it? It's almost an admission that there's don't, not quite sure where to go with this investigation um, and that it will be parked until further information, further forensics um, or other advances in technology that can help uh, in the investigation become kind of available. It isn't actually like that as much in real life, but I do have an issue with the term cold case because it does kind of give you a kind of a defeatist kind of impression. 
I know police in the past have said on several different missing persons cases or homicides, you know, they'll use the phrase like this is far from cold because they're actively, you know, responding to tips in terms of a police perspective and your interactions with detectives. Does that even impact how they psychologically might deal with it or the perception of how they're dealing with it? Uh, Yeah, I've done some research that says that it will. I mean, the term cold case itself because it is such a pejorative case, it doesn't lend itself to enthusiasm for a new detective on a case that's just been given one that they're told is cold. And particularly when they look at sort of the history of the investigations within, you know, on that case, they'll see perhaps that somebody they really respect, a really well-known investigator, has, has failed or has not been able to actually resolve the case. So straight away, if you see that, you think, well, if they haven't done it, then what chance do I stand 25 years later? Um, so I think that live homicides, which is an oxymoron, but you'll understand what I mean, current homicides, a, an investigator starts from scratch. They've got a lot of control over the investigation. If you then take on a cold case, one of 10, 15, 20 years, you're inheriting all the decisions that were made at subsequent points in the investigation over that 15 years. You don't have the control. You don't have the power, if you like, that you have at the beginning of a, of a live investigation. So now it is time to assemble. Nothing more majestic. (laughs) There truly is nothing more majestic than the sounds of a fine symphony. Jeff Forte, so that true. was not it, though. So I thought terrible. it was good. You're terrible. Come on, I had my French horn out. I was. <laughs> Remind know. me next week to to take a video during that of his face, and I will <laughs> Instagram and tweet it out. It's like it's like he's playing. Like he's so happy when he hears that. What do you mean like I'm playing. I am playing. <laughs> okay. All right. That music means it's time for the couch potatoes to assemble to tell you what's new. At the movies this weekend, Jeff Braun is your co-host of the Couch Potatoes. And Jeff, why don't we start with yours? Because I know you're really excited about this, but it's not getting the best reviews. No, I was excited when it came out because I'm a big fan of both these guys. Dave Bautista and Kumail Nanjiani star in the comedy Stuber. Hey! Uber? Yeah. This is official police business. Let me guess, you want me to drive you to all the Sarah Connors in the city? <laughs> You can help me crack a case I've been working on. You ain't no cop! Stop! What are you doing? Good for you, man. You're such a first guy. Get angry! Where are you? Switch the gas! It's an electric car! You got an electric car that doesn't use gas? Stuber, rated R, July 12. <laughs> Nanjiani is Stu, an Uber driver. I guess that's where they get Stuber from. And Batista's a cop who hires him to drive him around solving crimes. Hilarity ensues. At least it's supposed to. But like you said, not getting great reviews. Probably a better renter than a trip to the theater. But uh, both these guys have so much upside. Dave Batista, of course, has been hilarious as... Drax on uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy and in the Avengers movies and that sort of thing. And uh, Kumail Nanjiani made my favorite movie of 2017, The Big Sick, which he wrote and starred in. So. And what, so he, was he in Silicon Valley? He, yeah, he's in Silicon Valley. Oh, and he's okay. also a really funny stand-up comic. If you type in his name in YouTube and type in uh, Benjamin Button, he's got a really hilarious like three-minute bit about that movie, which we can't air on the radio. And it's interesting, too. Like Dave Bautista's <laughs> got another movie coming out next month. So he's yeah. kind of almost following The Rock's footsteps as like a, a big 
just, wrestler who suddenly hits it in Hollywood. It's just like, and then as soon as they got a little bit of traction, like we just need to smother audiences with their presence every opportunity we get. And it's also kind of funny too because Dave Batista recently, I guess there was a suggestion that he should co-star with John Cena in the next. Fast and Furious movie. I believe John Cena actually is going to be in it, but they wanted Batista. Someone wanted Batista to be a part of it, and he said, uh, thanks, but I only do good movies. <laughs> oh, boy. So now this movie comes out, and it's getting bad reviews. I don't know why he would ever think that this would be any... Like, Better move the that. needle that much more than a Fast and the Furious yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. I think Same we, kind of idea in yeah. terms of, like, the pacing and everything. Yeah, he's just taking a shot. Nobody's at, winning uh, Oscars here. No, nobody's <laughs> going to do that. But Stuber. Could still be, like Jeff said, this could be a good renter rather yeah. than going to the theater. This next one, I got to tell you, I am surprised to see that it's getting good reviews because when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, my God. I mean, I, I, I thought this looks fun, but it looks bad. Turns out maybe not so much. It's a creature feature named... Crawl. The state of Florida has issued a Category 5 hurricane warning. All residents must evacuate immediately. Grab your families, your loved ones, and get out. Dad! We won't be able to come for you. Creepy. So Crawl is set in Florida, where a massive hurricane is battering the main character Haley's hometown. Haley ignores the evacuation orders to go find her missing dad. Turns out he's just badly hurt in the crawl space of their house. And as she's trying to get him out, they get trapped by the quickly rising floodwaters. Turns out, though, the water is the least of their concerns because giant alligators have infiltrated the home and they're coming for them banging on the pipes. Where's their senses? I can distract them for you. You need to go now. Come on, and I'm sure it all works out just fine for everyone. <laughs> Turns out, though, it looks like it might work out just fine for you if you go to see it, because it's at 88% on Rotten wow. Tomatoes this morning. Sounds like it's just a good, fun, summer thriller, no-nonsense, just, you know, alligators in a flooded house. I mean, there's not, there's and, nothing, it's not rocket science. But from the life-imitating art department, this is, like, literally happened in Chicago this week, where it wasn't in a house, but they found an alligator in the city sewer. And didn't yeah. the guy, since someone punched it, or is that a different... No, that was a different, that was a guy in Florida who a gator was attacking his little dog. So he punched the gator. Seven year old man just jumped on the Far gator. Far too many possible oh gator God. stories. <laughs> like every body of water we pass, my youngest always says, Are there alligators in there? And I have to say over and over, Oh, they only exist in Florida. And then. Chicago? That's They're getting, getting closer. That's getting too close for yeah. comfort. That's just a short flight away. Oh, God. Yeah, an alligator can sneak in your suitcase, and next thing you know, Lake Winnipeg has never been the same. Hey, we got to talk about this quickly, Jeff. You mentioned this to the both of us this morning in the newsroom, and uh, Jaws dropped. What is happening with the early reviews on The Lion King? They're bad. No. They're, like, very bad. Oh They're saying God. that it's just, it's it looks... I guess it looks good, but it looks weird. There's, there's this thing called the Uncanny Valley, where things are almost realistic, but not quite, so it's unsettling. And that it's so much of it, is, it seems to be like a shot-for-shot remake, and there's just it's just like the most unnecessary movie that Disney's ever made. Agree to disagree. <laughs> well, you, well I, see, you haven't seen I, it. Have I, you seen it? It doesn't matter. It's not unnecessary. I don't want it to be any different. <laughs> I don't want you to stray from the plot. Stick to the best script known to Hollywood ever. Why bother doing it? 
because it's good to see it again in a different way. Why not way. just re-release it? I'd there be fine are, with that too. I'm just looking at some of the some of the early reactions. There are some good reviews. Yeah. Uh, like I see, uh, Mike Ryan from Uproxx says the Lion King is a monumental achievement of technological advancement. I've never seen anything quite like it. But that seems to be the theme that it's a technical marvel, yeah. a masterpiece. But yeah. And I guess because the cartoon characters, they could have you know expressions on their face, and when you do this photorealistic thing, you can't really. Yeah, and some of the voices too, like Chiwetel Ejiofor, great actor, but Jeremy Irons as Uncle Scar, like that. I, I they should have just brought him back. They brought James Earl Jones back for for uh, what was the name of his character? W- Mufasa. Mufasa. Yeah. So why not bring back Jeremy Irons for Scar? Why not just use the audio from the first movie and just put it over the new one if they're going to remake it that closely? Why do you have to hate lions so much? I, I don't like. I never liked the first ones. Seriously? Yeah. Gosh, I'm so disappointed in you and Kelly Moore this morning. Well, hey, it's going to be regardless of what how bad the reviews might end up being, it's going to be a huge movie. McNabb, you're going to be there. Like, I, well, here's the problem. I'm on vacation starting next week, and it comes up the 29th. Is it? No, the 19th. 19th story. That's what I meant. And I, that's when we leave. And I've been trying to figure out a way. To, like, can we land in Edmonton and then just go to the movie theater before going Time's to family? Time's your plane leave. Like seven. Well, There's got to be a niner we no, can hit. Here, here's the thing, though, McNabb. It's going to open. They, these movies might debut technically on the Friday, but they always open on the Thursday night. Ooh. So you can go see it Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Still get home in time for a nap before the show on Friday. Difference maker. There you go. I should. Problem. I don't want to go by myself. I want my whole family there. My brothers, my sister. Oh, well then. All right. I we just the, we I gave you a solution <laughs> and you just poo-pooed it. So yeah. fine. We'll just get out of here. I'll just go bury Get my out head. of my way. <laughs> we had that tornado watch yesterday. I'm sitting on my balcony. It's sunny. And I get an alert on my phone. Tornado watch. Mm-hmm. What and, is happening? And did you go out and take a look or did you just... I was outside. Oh, it was out sunny. Balcony, sorry, yeah. Yeah. So it was jar. It was kind of jarring, but also frightening when you get that because it was humid. Oh, it was humid, and then the wind kicked up, and then it died down. And I think a lot of us, I, myself, my husband, like we like to go outside and see what's up, right? Yeah. Because you're secretly intrigued by a tornado watch or warning, even though you know there's a potential for danger. And we want to talk about this this morning because, of course, uh, we had Mike Conkin on at uh, six thirty-five, just talking about how va- wide and vast our territory is in terms of the ground we have to cover. Man- Manitoba and how they don't have Environment Canada obviously doesn't have people in every community. So they rely heavily on volunteers and people who will call in with reports. And in the city of Steinbach, there are actually volunteers who are sometimes trained and definitely equipped with two Environment Canada radios that will send out alerts when it's time for them to spring into action. So to go out and see what's going on so they can report back to Environment Canada. The program is called Storm Ready, and Dennis Vassart is the Emergency Planning Coordinator with the City of Steinbeck. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning. All right, let's start with Storm Ready. Tell us about this program. How does it work? Well, we have uh, established a program here in the City of Steinbeck in conjunction with Environment, or pardon me, Environment and Climate Change Canada and Manitoba Emergency Measures Organization, where we have uh, trained volunteers that uh, when the Severe storms are approaching. We go out and watch the skies uh, and report back to Environment Canada as well as to the uh, the emergency personnel here in Steinbach um, what we see. And if we see something approaching, uh, say we see a funnel cloud or a tornado, we would set off our uh, 
mass alert system called Steinbach Alert now to alert the residents in our community. You mentioned trained volunteers. What kind of training? Well, we get training from uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada on cloud identification, how to read radar, uh, basic stuff, but it gives us enough training that we can go out and if we spot a cloud uh, lowering that has a rotation in it, we know enough that that, uh, that is where uh, our tornado would would form from or could form from. So we would we pay a special attention to to those type of things uh, and and report that to Environment Canada and and uh, and to the emergency preparedness folks here in Steinbach. Okay, so when we were talking about the storms yesterday, I went looking to see, I think so many people now kind of go out and check the skies when we hear about tornadoes. We're all on our social media feeds, perhaps following the hashtag Manitoba Storm or checking out to see where the latest tornado or funnel cloud or hail has touched down. And I think we all have a secret fascination with weather for good reason. It's fascinating to watch it develop, but also it can be pretty dangerous. And so after the Eli tornado touched down uh, well over a decade ago, that prompted many communities to say, we need to be doing more to alert our residents, to give them the best possible chance in a severe weather situation. And that prompted the city of Steinbach to take on a pilot project for the province in a program called Storm. It cleared off a broken out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they actually had to let guys come up and explain how it works. And it relies on volunteers, people who will go out regularly, and uh, if an alert goes off or if they know a thunderstorm is coming with the possibility, particularly for needles, tornadoes, they will go out and see if they can check the skies to make sure what's happening. Dennis Vassart is the emergency planning coordinator with the city of Steinbach and explained to us how the program works. Each team is on call for one week. They volunteer a week at a time. And from the beginning of May to the end of September, during summer storm season. Uh, they are trained. Uh, we, we get training from Manitoba, uh, in, uh, for, pardon me, from Environment and Climate Change Canada. And we have in-house training that we, that we put on every year for our folks as well. Um, they're trained to be able to get a basic reading of radar to track storms as they approach us. Uh, check the severity of the storm based on the colors of the radar and, and that type of thing. Um, also, how cloud identification and spotter safety is some of the things that we that we teach our folks. So how would it work? Would they get an alert from Environment Canada? Are they equipped with those radios that might say, okay, we might have a severe storm yep. approaching? Okay, so yes. alert goes off, and then what happens? Every morning you check, you check the weather, uh, and, and the... Periodic storm prediction center, uh, thunderstorm prediction for our area. For example, um, you listen to the radio and and find out what the reports are there. Um, Environment Canada, we have uh, several ways of getting information from them. Uh, weather radio being one of them, and we have a community partner that uh, where it's staffed on a 24-hour basis, and they will let us know when their weather radio goes off just to confirm that, that it's get, getting to everyone uh, and that uh, there are folks there. If it's a, a, a severe storm watch, we start watching the radar, paying attention to, to the radar and that type of thing. If it's a warning or something pops up that's close to us that we, watch, that we see on radar, then we will go ahead out and the, the team will decide where they're going to spot from each person and they'll head out to their location and start watching the skies.
Are these predetermined locations, or is it more like storm chasing in some ways? Well, it's more, it, it, they're um, not set in stone, because not all the storms approach from the same direction. So we want to make sure that we get more people lined up on the side. If, if for example, it's coming from the northwest rather than from the southwest, we will switch our, our locations a little bit. But the locations are pretty much standard in, in that we're, we're within uh, two miles of the city of Steinbach uh, on the approaching side of the storm uh, so that we can get as much advance notice as we can. Um, people will sit out in the, in the open area of the country so they can watch the skies and what's coming at us. How, how important has this program been? Has it made a difference in terms of predicting any uh, really bad weather coming, or is it just more about, in your mind, training and being at that ready for that worst-case scenario? Well, thank goodness we haven't had a tornado touchdown in our area since we started. Um, but we have, uh, we've had spottings of funnel clouds and that type of thing. Uh, that our spotters have reported to Environment Canada, um, and you know we we've been uh, it's it's a it's a valuable part of of our emergency preparedness program. So that was Dennis Vassart, the emergency planning coordinator with the city of Steinbach. And what's kind of neat about that too, so they're all volunteers. They'll have these four different teams, sometimes four to six people on the team because he's found that a lot of husbands and wives like to do it. Like they'll switch on and off when they volunteer. And not only do they storm watch and spot, but if there is a spout that touches down or a tornado, then they're asked to go out and do that preliminary evaluation before Environment Canada would come out. So they really are like a extended arm of Environment Canada providing some much valued information. Why don't we ask our guest here what his favorite sports movie is? The voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob Irving, joining us live on CJOB. Bob, what's your favorite sports movie? Well, it would probably be Field of Dreams. Uh, I've watched that about four or five times. Some of the other ones you mentioned, I like Rudy, I liked. Um, is Secretariat con- considered a sports movie? Nice. Because I. I watched Secretariat two or three times, and I love that movie. Sure, why I not? I think so. We we consider Dodgeball a sports movie, <laughs> yeah. so if we consider yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, I, it's a, one of our listeners said, if Kingpin is a sports movie, or if bowling is a sport, then I'll go with Kingpin. Yeah. Also, Bob, on the subject of horse racing movies, and it, you're here to talk football, we'll get to that in a second, but did you ever sure. see uh, Seabiscuit? Oh, yeah. Yep, I've seen that. It's, I like that, too. Uh, but Secretariat, I, I was enthralled by what Secretariat did back in the day, and uh, the movie I think captured it beautifully. And uh, I don't know, every time it's on, I watch it. <laughs> That's it. You just hunker down, and there goes the rest of your afternoon. That's right. Yep, I, I can't turn away from it. It's just, uh, it's such a great story, and and it's a true story. So it's it's easy to watch. And Field of Dreams, the same way. I don't know if it's on. I just get hooked on it, and I cannot turn it turn it off. On the subject of Field of Dreams, I'll just quickly mention uh, that's the movie that Jeff Braun and Christian O'Mell talked about this week on the CJOB Sports Show, and I've linked that podcast, if you want to hear it, to our Twitter, and it's on Facebook, or you can just Google uh, CJOB Sports Show podcast and you'll find it. The show you're going to want to tune into tonight, though, will be the pregame show ahead of the Bombers' match against the Toronto Argonauts. And, Bob, you know, I think we've been talking about this all week. We had Chris Streveler on earlier in the week, you know, asking him the question, you're 3-0, and they're 0-3, and, and the goal here would be not to take that this is a win that's going to come regardless. 
Well, and the storyline, of course, surrounding this game, Lorraine, is the fact that the Bombers are 3-0. and Not only are the Argos 0-3, they're an ugly 0-3. They lost their first game of the year 64-14. to Now, they've improved since then. Uh, the last time out, they lost by one point. So I, I think it's fair to say that they're on the right track. But it's uh, I know for most fans and observers, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, the Argos rising up and knocking off the Bombers tonight, although I've... I've seen many upsets over the years, and it certainly would be an upset tonight if the Argos won. The Bombers have a very strong team. They're coming off, I think, their best effort of the year. Uh, In Ottawa last week, boy, they looked really sharp on both offense and defense. And if they can carry that through again tonight, which, of course, is their goal, uh, then it's going to be, I think, a tough night for the Argos. What can you tell us about Argos quarterback McLeod Bethel-Thompson, who is in place of uh, injured pivot James Franklin? He's making his second start. This is a well-traveled veteran, right? He's been, Brett, with about uh, 11 teams. I've got the list on another sheet of paper that I don't have in front of me, but he's played in every football league that was ever existed. Um, and he, he hasn't really played much. He's, he's been signed, I think, by eight different NFL teams, some of them more than once, uh, but he's never really gotten on the field. And he didn't get much of a chance to play until last year when he started nine games for the Argos after they had some injuries and his record was two wins and seven losses. He's 31 years of age. He would be the quintessential journeyman a guy who's never been able to sort of catch on and establish himself anywhere, and he'll start at quarterback tonight. Now, if you watch him play, he's a big guy, 6'4", he's about 230, uh, and, and last year I, I watched most of the Argo games, if not all of them. There were moments where he looked pretty good, uh, but overall his career has been a, you know, a story of more misses than hits, let's put it that way. Just because I have all these sports stories in my, or sports movies in mind, and many of them true stories, it feels like now you're setting it up for this severe underdog to, to come out and win tonight. But you're you're talking about well traveled in the sense of he's been a lot of places. But if he doesn't have that much game time, then in theory he shouldn't be matched for our defense. Well, no, I mean he should have a tough time if the bomber defense plays like it can. Uh, I would think they're going to give McLeod Bethel Thompson some real some real issues tonight. He's a very confident guy. I spoke with him yesterday. You'll hear from him on our pregame show tonight. He uh, tells me that the Argos are they're this close. They're on the verge offensively of breaking out, and they certainly do have some talent. He's got some real weapons at his disposal if he can get them the ball, and uh, the Bomber defense, of course, will be determined to disrupt uh, McLeod Bethel Thompson to the point where he can't do that. The headline at cjob.com, Bob, is Blue Bombers Adam Big Hill on active roster, but will be game-time decision. Do you think it'll be yay or nay? Well, I think it'll be nay. He's been fighting a hamstring injury, and he didn't practice this week at all. He didn't practice last week. He's such a valuable player, and they have so many games left to play after tonight. This is game four and 14 to go after tonight that... I just don't uh, see running them out there in a game that where they don't, you know, I don't really need them. I think it's fair to say, uh, I think that would be kind of risky. So I'd be surprised if he plays tonight. I know it's a game time decision, but I'd be very surprised if he played. And how's Matt Nichols doing? He's doing great. He's had an outstanding week of practice. He shook off that hit in Ottawa last week, and boy, did he look good in that game. You know, he was 16 of 20 passing. 
he just looked like he was in total sync with the rest of the offense. And I know he's excited about going out there tonight and picking up where he left off before he got that uh, awkward shot in the Ottawa game. Talk about the defense. You mentioned how well they're playing. I'm reading, too, about the this being kind of a historic run for them when it comes to not having allowed an offensive touchdown against them since the third quarter of week one. So- That's right. Well, the Bomber defense, Loren, has given up one touchdown in the first three games. They haven't allowed a touchdown the last 34 times their opponent has huh. possessed the ball. Uh, they haven't scored a touchdown. They haven't given up a touchdown in two straight games. The last time a Bomber team did that was 2005. No Bomber team has ever gone three straight games without allowing a touchdown. So uh, this is a chance for this Bomber crew to make some club history tonight, and I don't uh, necessarily think the players here now are thinking a lot about that, although they've been reminded about it. So, yeah, it's been impressive. The play of the defense has been very impressive. What time's the coverage start, Bob? Starts at 5.30. It goes on for at least six hours, depending on how long the game runs. And uh, I can't wait to get it going. I'm, I'm getting warmed up already. Yesterday, I'm leaving work, and we've got this big... So we're at Polo Park, in case you don't know. We're just north of Hudson's Bay. There's two buildings connected, uh, Cora's. Breakfast is just around the corner. But if you, like, leave the bay and walk out the north side door and then turn right, our building's right there. And there's this big generator behind our building in case the power goes out because the radio station still needs to be on the air. And it's super loud. Have you heard it yet mm-hmm. since you've been here? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a fairly sizable generator. And uh, I walk by it as I'm going to my car, and I look down and I see what, at first I thought, what is that, a pen? And then I take a closer look, like, oh, no, that's a needle. A meth needle. Uh, Yeah, it's a meth needle. The cap's still on it, but uh, I didn't know. Someone asked me, I put the picture on Instagram, and they said, well, what did you do? Did you tell somebody? I said, yeah, I came inside and I told someone who's smarter than me, uh, who had that line to the Security. landlord yep. to come clean it up because I guess they have special equipment to deal with that kind of stuff. But the fact that they need special equipment to clean that up is alarming. And I put that on Facebook and my sister who works at a daycare in Transcona, daycare and school, says she's seen needles like maybe 10 feet from the sandbox where the kids play. And is that new or relatively new for her? Yeah. Yeah, and I like I, I know the needles are we're seeing them everywhere now, but it's the first time that I have seen one out in the wilderness and kind of jarring. There was a time not too long ago that I would have had to not take a not just take a double look, but ask somebody, "What am I looking at here?" and they would have have explained to me what kind of needle and what it's used for that we're looking at. And now we're at a point that we've seen so many pictures or images or stumbled across them that as soon as you sent that photo last night, I said, meth needle, eh? Like that's, which is sad. It should have been, should be, it shouldn't be something that we can all identify a needle. I understand that. But the fact that we know that it's what it's being used for and, and how, and how that's just proliferated right across the city is just crazy to me. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, you were finding them in, in select neighborhoods and that's not right either. And now they're everywhere. And we've had the Bear Clan talk about how, you know, the increased fines of needles are rising year after year. But I I don't think I would have expected it in near a shopping mall. Yeah, and, uh, I get lots of people travel through here. I understand how busy it is. But I just, someone going right behind a busy commercial building, it's crazy to me. I put it on social media yesterday and one uh, person commented, starting to see those everywhere. 
Sad. Worse when you see the cap off. The cap was still on this one. But when you, worse when you see the cap off and the needle bent and you wonder, was that me who stepped on it? Thank God it didn't go through my shoe. Uh, someone else saying, I saw one outside my work this week too when I let the the red shirts know. I guess this is, uh, is that like downtown... Uh, the b- downtown biz and patrol, yeah. Yeah. I uh, let the red shirts know it was there. They said someone had been around and cleaned the area and must have missed one. Makes me wonder how many are being picked up before I get downtown in the morning. And I drive up Portage every day to get to work. And I always, and not that every person who's walking through Winnipeg at four in the morning is on meth. No, no, no. But you see some people and you kind of wonder, well, that looks like somebody who maybe is fueled by meth right now. Um, and I see a lot of people out and about at that time of day. So maybe there are tons of needles downtown. I don't know. But you can let us know if you've seen them out in the public where, when you're just out and about. One of our regular listeners, and I won't identify where they work, but just texting us now to say that the security guards at uh, their work scoop them up all the time, sometimes in very large quantities. Wow. Let's head out to Folk Fest, where my friend Heather Milne is set up. Heather, good morning to you. Good morning, Brad. How are you? Doing very well. So did you get, like, when did you get there? So uh, we actually came out Tuesday night at 11 p.m. to get in line to set up our tent. Tuesday? Yeah, at, at 11 p.m. So we slept overnight in our car, and then they let us into the park for 8 a.m. to set up our tent. And it was basically so we could get a spot that had, you know, a little bit of shade so the sun isn't waking you up every morning, a little bit more of a comfortable tent day. We've heard the sun is um, not hard to find, but the shade is at a premium out there. So if you were there at 11 p.m., how, what, what, where were you in the line? Car four or car 400 or? <laughs> there were probably about, I would say 50 cars or so, maybe a hundred, like somewhere in that number ahead of us. And then there were easily, I don't know, probably about 500 cars by the time we got through. <sighs> but I mean, most of them were behind us. Thank goodness. <laughs> but the festival started proper yesterday. So you were there a full day ahead of schedule. What did you do all day on Wednesday? Well, let me tell you, part of the joy of Folk Fest is we actually didn't stay the entire time. We set up our tent and then went home to our real lives and showers and beds. And everyone is just really honest and lovely. I mean, I guess you're going to run into the occasional jerk, but for the most part, our stuff was all there when we came back. So pretty happy about that. For the most part, what uh, what's missing? Not the tent. Oh, no, oh, no, no, not for us. For, I'm, I'm going to just, we'll put it out there so that if anybody is thinking, hey, next year, I'd like to go to Folk Fest, that nice person I was listening to on the radio, promise that everything would still be there. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't want to be blamed for that. <laughs> Got it. That makes sense. So the festival began yesterday. How was the, the lineup that you got to see? Oh, it was so lovely. I mean, the first day is a little bit quieter, so it's just the main thing. Um, but it, it was a really great lineup. Death Cat for Cutie came on, I think at about 10 o'clock. Um, and then there was this huge lightning show, but no rain. So they had to stop the show and uh, kind of wait it out for about a half an hour. And then they got started again around 1130. So what happens in that situation when there's a lightning show? Like, where does everybody take cover? Um, honestly, most people just kind of stayed where they were. <laughs> Some people went to the beer tent. <laughs> Well, that's a good spot to, to do it, I guess. But I, I that yeah. could be Under like a tent. A, I don't know. Yeah, like that, I, I imagine a bunch of people standing in a field could make for kind of a a, a bad barbecue situation. <laughs> so, I think that sums it up very nicely, and I'm sure, listen, I'm sure Folk Fest has safety procedures in place. But I think most people are like, "This is okay. It's not raining. It's really pretty. There's still music. It's great." <laughs> so, how many years has this been for you? 
Um, I think this is my third year camping and about my fifth year coming to, to the show as a whole. My friends have been camping for years and years and years, and they finally talked me into it about two years ago. And it is so worth it. You don't have to leave. Like it's, just, it's so relaxed. It really gives this full, this full experience for the weekend. Are you there for the whole weekend? Oh, better believe it. Not leaving. Our parking spot is way too far away. We're going to try to navigate that again. <laughs> so what? So when do you like? When does it, the festival wrap up? What time does it wrap up? Uh, the festival wraps up Sunday evening. I'm not too sure what time the final act is, but it's sometime in the evening, probably about ten, eleven o'clock. Um, but then you're also allowed to sleep over Sunday evening as well and go home Monday. Might as well, yeah. Get a good night's sleep or late night no sleep, maybe if it's the last night. <laughs> I was a little bit surprised, actually. My friends and I kind of took it easy yesterday. We don't first go pace ourselves. And so we're like, okay, it's 11 o'clock. Let's, let's go home. Let's go home to the tent. Let's go to bed. It'll be fine. We'll get a, a good sleep. We actually did get a good sleep. Like, all of us got at least eight hours. Um, and we were woke up to the gentle sound of yodeling from the tent next to us at 7 a.m. Oh, how nice. <laughs> so I wish I had known that because I had suggested to Brett that we try to give you a shout at 630 and then you thought that may be a bit unfair, given, you know, the idea would be to stay up a little later if you're camping and at, a, at a music festival. But okay, next time we'll call you early. I think that sounds perfect. And you know what? It's kind of, it's like six of one, half dozen of the other. Either you're staying up until 6.30 or you're waking up at 6.30. Um, but either way, 6.30 is a safe time. There's morning yoga here, too. It's like, they make it a very all-inclusive experience. So on Monday, when you then do your teardown and get out, uh, how long of a process is that? Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty short. I think by that point, a lot of people have cleared out. You'll find a lot of people pack up first thing Sunday morning or Sunday evening, and so there's maybe a third of the campers left. So a lot of the cars have cleared out. You can bring your car right up to the campsite, clear out. I would say like maybe I don't know under an hour for for tear down. Okay. I actually have no. What I'm looking at my friends for that one because I'm the lazy, awful friend that has never teared down. So, oh, <laughs> looking at them for confirmation. I know. I you're know. Ju- you're just there for. You're there to offer moral support. Moral support, definitely. <laughs> just before we let you go, who are who are you most looking forward to seeing and hearing? Oh, the sheep dogs! I'm so excited for the sheep dogs. They're so great. Have you ever seen them live? I have. Yeah. At uh, I think it was the Junos when they were here several years ago playing there, and I got to be a seat filler. Which really? is a story oh, for another so time. Good. But yeah, yeah, they are excellent. That is so cool. I want to hear more about being asleep, a sheep filler, but I guess I won't turn this around. I don't know how much time you have left. <laughs> so the sheepdogs are Saturday at 9.30 on the main stage. Heather Milne, thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the weekend at the Winnipeg Folk Fest. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Have a lovely weekend. having fun this morning on the, yep. the subject of sports movies. What's your favorite sports well, movie? Well, I got a couple, and they're a little bit off the beaten path. I loved Cinderella Man with Russell Crowe, which is the true story of Jimmy Braddock, the boxer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the boxing scenes are much better than most boxing films. Uh, the great Canadian heavyweight George Chevallo worked as a consultant on that and worked with Russell Crowe uh, to help him get the boxing more convincing. Because most boxing films, they, uh, the, the boxing scenes are dreadful. Like, right. how so? Well, the guy's just, it's clear that the guy is not a boxer. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's clear that Sylvester Stallone has never boxed. Yeah. You know, you watch the Rocky films, he looks like a barroom brawler. Yeah. Uh, Russell Crowe gave a very credible performance as a boxer. 
Cool. No, I mean, experts would would know the difference, but but he he did a much better job than most people would have. The family dynamics in that one are really good too, yeah. because there's so there's so much poverty there, but this oh, loving yeah. relationship with his wife yep. and his children, and so there's like if you're if you're I would say looking for a bit of not the romance, but just sort of that heartwarming family stuff too. Yeah. Besides the sports triumph, yeah, you don't have to like boxing to like right. Cinderella Man. That's, that's right. That's what I like. There's a great Australian film that was done a long time ago. It's called Far Lap. P H A R. LAP was the name of a racehorse, a legendary racehorse in Australia hmm. who who died mysteriously. Okay. And it's a, it's it was done I, I think back in the early 80s. 83. Yeah, 83. It's a terrific film. Far Lap is cool. a really good one. I'll uh, have so, to check that out. And there's another old one that goes back it probably I haven't it's been a long time since I've seen it. It's probably quite dated now. It's called Paper Lion. And it's the true story of the great American writer George Plimpton going to camp, trying out as a quarterback for the Detroit Lions. He was the first sports writer to go to training camp with teams. It became quite fashionable after a while, but it was George Plimpton was the first. And a very young Alan Alda plays George Plimpton in this, and he goes to camp supposedly undercover as a quarterback uh, trying out for the Detroit Lions. Of course, everybody in the team figures out eventually who he is and that he's not really an athlete, that he's there to get the stories. But he wrote a book about it, and they made a film about it. So those are a little bit off the beaten path if you like some decent sports films. Great suggestions, though. I mean, those are movies that I'd never heard of Farlap until you mentioned it, and fascinated to see when you Google Farlap, there are all sorts of things like, what really killed Farlap? So, yeah, I wanted to learn more about that story. So thank you for those suggestions, Jeff. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.